This is The Guardian. It's a mental illness that will affect one in a hundred people over the course of their lives. So schizophrenia is a term, it's quite an old term, that's used to describe a collection of symptoms that some people experience, which are broadly called psychotic symptoms. So these can include things like hearing voices, believing things which aren't true, often paranoid thinking, but also more subtle features like conceptual disorganisation or social withdrawal. Despite the devastating impact schizophrenia can have, it isn't always straightforward to get help. Patients can often wait, sometimes years, before a definitive diagnosis is given. There's increasing understanding in the case of psychosis and schizophrenia that the amount of time that you spend with the symptoms before being treated can have a negative impact on how well you do later on. But I think it's fair to say that, as a rule, people can wait a very, very long time. That's Matt Knorr. He's researching how artificial intelligence might one day be able to improve things for patients. These AI tools would provide incredibly valuable information to psychologists and psychiatrists in that early diagnosis and monitoring stage. So today we're asking... How could AI change psychiatry? And what the risks might be of mixing machine learning with mental health? From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Matt Knorr, you're a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at the University of Oxford and University College London. And you've got a background in computational neuroscience and you've done a study recently that kind of wraps all these things together, looking at how AI can be used to pick up on subtle differences in speech patterns in people with schizophrenia. So how is schizophrenia typically diagnosed? Like all psychiatric conditions, it all starts from the history. So the patient's account of their symptoms, what they're experiencing, what they're struggling with, when those problems started, and the time course of those problems. In the case of something like schizophrenia, patients are often not aware of the extent of their um, difficulties. They can lose insight. So it's often incredibly useful to have the input of friends, family members, um, employers. But diagnosis in psychiatry is a long-term process. Often it requires multiple contacts and observing people over many, sometimes weeks or even years, before we're confident what the diagnosis is. But there's no blood test, there's no brain scan. It's all done on talking and observing. So, Matt, I'd like to talk about what took you to this study. I mean, what did we understand beforehand about how schizophrenia impacts the way that we think. Some of the earliest observers of psychosis and and severe mental illness, psychiatrists going back more than 100 years, pointed out that there appears to be what they call a conceptual disorganisation or a loosening of associations in the mind. Put simply, what they observed was that when people become very unwell, they can begin to 
talk about things in an order which doesn't quite fully make sense. That sometimes you would have non sequiturs or ideas coming out of the blue, or people would become derailed off topic, etc. And nobody really knew then and still doesn't know now what the cause of that is. My interest as a neuroscientist and psychiatrist was coming from a slightly different direction. It was coming from trying to understand how we form internal maps or models of the world in our mind, how we cluster memories together which are similar in meaning. And language is a way of getting an insight into the way somebody's mind is structured. If you let somebody talk and talk and talk, they will typically jump from topic to topic in a way which gives some insight roughly about what's on their mind, what's preoccupying them, how they believe ideas are associated. So this takes us on to your study, really, looking at AI language models and how these might be applied in diagnosing schizophrenia. So tell me about what you wanted to find out and and what you did. So in our study, what we asked people to do is to uh, give us a sample of their speech. So we asked them a very, very simple question to name as many animals as they could or to name as many words as they could think of beginning with a certain letter. And we simply recorded their speech. We then analysed that speech using a predecessor, actually, of GPT. So it's a, a slightly simpler model, which allows us to quantify how close any two words are in their meaning, in their semantic essence. So, for example, dog and cat are very close, whereas dog and giraffe might be a bit further away. And using this measure of semantic distance or coherence, we were able to develop models which could detect very subtle differences in the speech of people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and those who had not. And that actually correlated, it predicted their symptom severity. So what kind of subtle differences are we talking about here between people who have schizophrenia and those who don't? I think the first thing to say is that it's it's certainly not the case that everybody with a diagnosis showed these features. But the more unwell patients, when we looked at their word lists, and especially when we modelled them using mathematical models, we could detect that the words that they gave us, the order in which those words were presented, were far less easy for the language model to predict than they would have been for somebody who, for example, had never experienced any mental health problems. So to give you an example, if I were to ask you to tell me as many fruits as you could, for example, you might start off by giving me uh, fruits, followed by vegetables, followed by Middle Eastern dishes, and so on and so forth. That would be fairly easy for a model to predict because there was some structure to the way you were picking out those words from your memory bank. When we looked at the word lists of people who had very severe symptoms, they were much more jumbled, which gave us an indication that there was something going on either in the way those memories were stored in the brain or in the way they were being accessed. And we haven't got to the bottom of what's going on there. But what we can say is that it's likely that when people recover from their episode, when their symptoms go down, they become more structured once again. So what we think this might be able to help us with, perhaps in the near future, is actually beginning to 
detect when people might be starting to become unwell and they're showing the very earliest subtle signs of disorganization before, for example, the full-blown psychotic symptoms emerge. Or similarly, we may be able to detect when a treatment is showing promise of working versus not. And this study was just done on people with schizophrenia, but I wonder whether this could be used for other kind of psychiatric conditions like depression or even something like dementia. We, we agree. The reason we chose schizophrenia is because of all of the conditions that I deal with in clinical practice, it is by far the most striking example of conceptual disorganization when people become unwell. But it's clear that because all psychiatric conditions, things like depression and anxiety, are also diagnosed by listening to what people say, it's clear that similar tools might also be useful there. I think it is now important to move beyond this very simple word list task that I mentioned into speech, which is much more natural, much more like the kind of conversation you and I are having, much more like the kind of conversation a patient might have with their therapist. And I think that there will definitely be signs there that will um, differentiate, for example, somebody who is profoundly depressed from someone who has a more anxiety type picture. And that may also be valuable for the same reasons. Is that how you envisage this working within the psychiatric process? I mean, how do you see it working, I guess, in the real world, in the clinic? The way that I think many of us now are thinking about psychiatry is that we need to close the gap between the way that doctors and psychologists diagnose and monitor patients with psychiatric conditions and how the same is done for medical conditions. If you were to see a, a cardiologist because you had chest pain or breathlessness, of course the cardiologist would listen to your symptoms and take a history, but they would also send you for an ECG and that would provide additional valuable information to help with a differential diagnosis to rule things out. We think the same thing could be used in psychiatry um, we think a way of quantifying that, using the words people say and these AI tools, would provide incredibly valuable information to psychologists and psychiatrists in that early diagnosis and monitoring stage. It's never going to replace the need for a person-to-person -person interaction. I certainly don't believe that it will, but I think it will help bring precision to our field, which I think is sorely missing right now. This is at a very early stage, but we hear a lot about the dangers of AI. Where do you think there are some risks or some ethical questions that we need to be considering? Yeah, I think that's the key question. And although I'm bullish about the use of AI and language models in healthcare, I'm also cautious and worried in some ways. I think there are a couple of risks that are specific to, to this work. One of them is that we don't fully understand how these language models work. Um, you will have heard many people say that AI um, neural networks are black boxes, that we don't fully understand how they learn what they learn. And I would back that up. And obviously, if we don't understand fully how these models work, we don't fully understand how they can go wrong, how they can mislead us. I think with specific reference to the language models, 
there's something else, which is that these language models are trained on language from the internet, largely, language that humans have put out there. So therefore, unfortunately, they also embody all the biases that humans have, whether they're gender norms or ethnic stereotypes. And that is also a real risk if we're not careful. So I am hopeful that uh, people will have these things in mind before before going forward um, and pushing any of this into the clinic. I certainly have these concerns top of my mind. For me, I think we have to be humble about what we currently can say about the way the mind is structured and the way the brain works. But I think that these ideas are certainly fascinating enough to keep me occupied for for decades to come. So what will you be looking at next? Because this study gives kind of a little insight into what may be happening in the brain if somebody has schizophrenia, but it also is the seed of a useful tool. So what are you going to be investigating? The ideas that I'm now playing with and excited to push forward are twofold. First, we want to be able to apply similar tools to a much more unconstrained natural speech, the kind of speech that goes on in the clinic room, in the therapy room, where I think that if we could apply similar tools to try and understand where people's minds go, whether they are attracted to negative or positive memories, for example, or interpretations, I think that would be very valuable to broadening this out to a range of psychiatric conditions and actually telling us a lot about psychology, how the mind works. The second direction, which we're starting now, is to actually scan a small number of people's brains using non-invasive brain imaging like MRI as they are speaking and as they are listening to stories, audiobooks, so that we can actually capture the second-by-second variation in brain activity as people are listening to words. And we can begin to think about how that brain activity, when coupled with these AI models, might tell us something about how meaning is represented in the brain itself. And I think those two directions open up a very exciting space for some of the deepest questions, I think, in neuroscience and and mental health. It sounds fascinating. Matt, thank you so much. My, My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Matt Knorr. Before you go... The Guardian is open to anyone who wants to read it or listen, but it is closed to billionaire owners telling us what to do. We might be ranted at, laughed at, parodied even, but because of support from our readers and our listeners, we remain independent. So, if you can, join the millions of others around the world who are keeping it that way. Just visit support. .theguardian.com Today's episode was produced by Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Jetzt neu, unser lautestes Checken. Der neue McCrispy mit 100% aus dem Hähnchenfilet, zartschmelzendem Cheese mit Cheddar und cremiger Honig-Senf-Soße. Jetzt probieren, nur bei McDonalds. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.